So our next speaker of the morning is, I guess maybe we're in afternoon now, Midwest time. So our next speaker is Dr. Susan Buckbinder. Um, Dr. Buckbinder is a clinical professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco, and the uh, uh, leads the HIV program at um, at uh, the San Diego or San Francisco Department of Health. She's a key uh, investigator in both the prevention trials network and the vaccine trials network, and and a member of the executive committee for the vaccine trials network, and has been a lead in vaccine development and pre and post exposure prophylaxis or pre exposure prophylaxis for HIV. And she's going to lead us in pre-exposure prophylaxis cases and common questions. So good, good afternoon, Susan, and welcome. Thanks so much, Connie. Uh, so these are my disclosures. And uh, the learning objectives are that we're going to talk about same-day prep starts. We're going to talk about two-on-one prep, and then we'll talk about uh, TDF-FTC versus CAF-FTC, uh, among other topics. So this is interactive, so get ready to respond. Um, my first question is, do you, ha- do you start PrEP on the same day or do you wait for test results before prescribing PrEP? Um, one is same day, two is wait for lab results, three is I haven't prescribed PrEP, and four is something else. Okay, so a little over half wait for lab results and about a third uh, do same day. Um, would... Either of my panelists, uh, or I'm not sure who was on my panel at the moment. It looks like we've got Paul and Connie. Um, and Sally. No. Oh, and Sally. Sorry, Sally keeps uh, dropping off the, there we go. I see you, Sally. Um, would someone like to respond to you? Do, you? do any of you do same day starts? So our, I am not responsible for our prep clinic, but I we have been doing uh clinical trial with same-day start prep, and um, that has actually been going very well. So I guess from my perspective, um, just like we were discussing with same-day antiretroviral therapy, I think it's reasonable for same-day start um, if the data that you're going to tell us about, which I hope you're going to tell us about, (laughs) suggests that that's a reasonable thing to do. I know there's still controversy. A lot of people feel more comfortable waiting for lab results, but um, maybe I'll let Sally uh, give her thoughts on this. Well, I I think it depends on the setting and the patient. Uh, You know, and I do not uh, run the the prep clinic here in West Virginia either, but in um, populations of um, people who inject drugs, uh, particularly women who inject drugs, here in rural areas, there's not a lot of understanding for PrEP, and I think that it's really a stretch in many cases, and nothing is dogmatic to start in, in that setting. I think we have to have much more infrastructure and wraparound services, you know, uh, that will really enable that hopefully in the future. Great. Well, here's some data from uh, some New York City sexual health clinics where they looked at over 1,400 PrEP candidates and asked them, do you have kidney disease? Do you have a history of chronic hepatitis B infection? And do you have any of the signs or symptoms of acute HIV? 
If they said yes to any of those, they went into a delayed PrEP arm. If they said no to all of those, then they went into the immediate PrEP arm. And 97% of people actually qualified for immediate PrEP. If we then look at what happened, um, there were two people of that 1,387 people who had a GFR of less than 60 and had to stop PrEP for that reason, and another two who were NAT positive. Um, but that means that over 99% were able to continue on PrEP and less than 1% had to stop PrEP. If we look at the delayed PrEP arm and look uh, at the uh, what the group of people who were no longer qualified for PrEP, um, 14% did not meet PrEP qualifications. That meant 86% did, but only 35% actually returned for PrEP. So particularly if you have a patient coming in asking for PrEP, um, if you can do same-day starts, a bird in the hand uh, it may actually help you to, to get PrEP started because it can be hard to get people to come back for PrEP. Okay, um, this is just a question to ask how you're handling PrEP prescriptions in the time of COVID. Given challenges we have with patients coming into the clinic, how are you now prescribing PrEP? Do you require three-monthly clinic visits and three month, give three-month refills? Are you providing extra refills without additional testing? Three is doing home HIV testing without any STI testing. Um, number four is doing home HIV testing um, with refills. Sorry, three was without refills. Number five is not prescribing PrEP. And number six is something else. So please vote. Uh, so what we have is people are still requiring three monthly visits, 37%. Um, some are providing some extra refills. And I think there's a mixture of things that are being done currently to try to keep people on PrEP uh, over a period of time. Uh, uh, it is difficult sometimes getting people to come in, and yet we don't want there to be lapses in PrEP uh, coverage. So I don't know if any of the panelists have anything to say about this particular Topic. I'm just wondering whether people. Um, I, I'm not surprised that kind of it's kind of kind of all over the place, but um, I'm wondering if people are incorporating video or or telephone visits um, into this. And I'm sure that's going to depend on the on the clinic operations, but that might be another way to to decrease the number of of return visits. Yeah. Okay. Let's um, move on because I want to be sure we get through as many cases as we can. So we have a 22-year-old man who has sex with men who comes to your office seeking PrEP. He has multiple partners, never uses condoms, and his most recent receptive anal sexual encounter was 48 hours ago. He's asymptomatic. What would you recommend? One, you send an HIV test to the lab and start PrEP if the test comes back negative. Number two, you start PrEP today. Number three, you start PEP today. Go ahead and vote. Okay, um, so 58% are going to start PEP today. What about my panelists? I don't know the data well, Susan, but I think okay. I, I, I voted for, I voted for, uh, I would have voted for PEP if I was allowed to vote. Yeah, which is, which is what I was trying to get at, is that people come in seeking PrEP, but we do need to see if they actually qualify for PEP. It's safest to give them PEP if they do qualify for PEP, which is, within 72 hours of a high-risk exposure, um, as early as possible is best. 
you want to order the usual lab tests um, and start a 28-day three-drug regimen immediately. That covers you for PEP, whereas PrEP is just a two-drug regimen. And usually you're going to use an integrase inhibitor with two NRTIs. But then you can transition seamlessly back to PrEP after 28 days if the HIV antigen antibody test is negative. So this is just a reminder when you're starting PrEP to ask about PEP uh, qualification because otherwise you might start PEP instead in case, <clears throat> excuse me, someone's had a recent exposure. And several members of our audience have also commented on um, the need for STI testing, and yes. I'm sure you're going to get to that. So Yes, we will talk about uh, STI testing. And that is part of, uh, that is part of what should be done here. Okay, a 21-year-old woman asks you to prescribe PrEP. She states that she always uses condoms with her multiple sexual partners but would like to stop using them. What do you recommend? One is you don't offer PrEP because condoms have worked well for her up to this point and you don't want to risk STIs. Two is you don't offer PrEP because it doesn't work well in women. Three, you offer PrEP but tell her it works less well if she has STIs. And four, you offer PrEP and counsel that only condoms will prevent STIs, but let her make the condom decision. So please vote. Okay, so 87% of you are going to offer her PrEP, which is great. Um, what about the panel? Um, do you have anything to say about either STIs or uh, PrEP in women? Well, I mean, she's telling you that, that she really doesn't want to do the condoms and to negate that. And not, you know, sort of give that credibility, I think, is is really not going to get you anywhere. I think a, a good discussion, I mean, I agree with the, the audience, a good discussion about uh, PrEP and, you know, the need to take the pill every day when there have been studies where uh, PrEP has not worked in women, you know, the ad adherence has been really uh, not good. So you really have to make that. And then counsel her about the STIs and the, the protection condoms add that PrEP does not, and then she makes the decision. So I think that's absolutely the right answer because I guarantee you if you just say, no, condoms have worked for you, you know, she's telling you she doesn't want to do it anymore. Right. Thank you. And, and I think the question comes up about does PrEP actually work in women? And um, what you can see here is that there is this, if you look at the percentage of participant samples that had detectable drug levels, and measure it against effectiveness, you can see that there's this very strong relationship. And so there were these studies with women with very low levels of efficacy, but it's because very few of them were actually taking PrEP. Um, if you actually look at um, whether PrEP works for cisgender women, the answer is yes if they take it regularly. Um, this is a meta-analysis that shows that as the adherence level goes up, the relative risk of becoming infected goes down, but we do have to remember that there's different PK for women than there is for, uh, for anal exposures. There's different ex exposure for vaginal tissue than rectal tissue. Tenofovir concentrates at 10 to 100-fold higher levels in rectal than vaginal tissue. And it's also cleared more rapidly from vaginal than rectal tissue. And so as you were saying, Sally, you need, you need to emphasize for women that six to seven days will maximize effectiveness. Although there are data from demonstration projects that suggest that you may still achieve high levels of effectiveness even with less um, 
adherence, but our counseling is to take PrEP every day if you're uh, a woman. Now, in terms of the relationship of STIs to, uh, to the efficacy of PrEP, there's no evidence that STIs lower the PrEP efficacy in, um, in RCTs. So in the IPREC study and the Partners PrEP study, the rates of, uh, of infection were actually quite high, um, and yet there was no interaction of PrEP efficacy with, uh, with having STIs. And then in open-label studies, in the PROUD study and the USMSM PrEP demo study, very high rates of baseline STIs and yet um, 86% effectiveness of PrEP in the PROUD study and very low incidence in the U.S. men's uh, MSM PrEP demo study. So it doesn't seem as though STIs cause uh, PrEP to be overwhelmed. So that's really good news. Okay. Your 26-year-old transgender female patient says she's just heard about a new long-acting injectable PrEP agent, and she'd like to learn more about it. What do you tell her? Do you say long-acting cabotegravir is given as two injections every 12 weeks for PrEP? Do you uh, say that two long-acting cabotegravir was shown to provide a higher level of protection than TDF-FDC, but that's only true for men who have sex with men, so it wouldn't qual- she wouldn't qualify? Do you uh, say that three long-acting cabotegravir must be given with a one-month oral lead-in and a prolonged oral phase when discontinued? Or do you say that long-acting cabotegravir should be combined with long-acting rolpivirine when used as PrEP? Go ahead and vote. Okay, so 45% of you got this one right. There were some trick questions in there. Um, We'll talk about the every 12 weeks. It was actually changed to every eight weeks because of PK data. And the data did show uh, transgender women were protected. But um, it is true that you need this one-month oral lead-in and a prolonged oral phase when discontinued. Do any of the panelists have anything to say about the cabotegravir results um, that were presented at AIDS 2020? Have you seen those? And um... so, uh, we were talking in the in the earlier presentation about the oral uh, lead-in phase. Is that yeah. um, is that is just, it necessary? Yeah, is that just to establish um, tolerability? It is just to establish tolerability because the challenge is, so this is cabotegravir, um, long acting. It's a, an analog of dolutegravir. It's got a very long half-life in its oral form, but in its, its um, long acting form, it is uh, very long acting. It's got a, a half-life of um, 21 to 50 days. And once it's injected, you can't dialyze it off. So the, the, what we don't know yet is how well tolerated it was and if that's going to continue to be a requirement um, going forward. But because um, of the long acting, once it's in, it's in and you're, it, it's a done deal. Um, the first month is really just a, uh, for tolerability. Um, the HPTN 083 study for men who have sex was the study for men who have sex with men and transgender women globally. The HPTN 084 study was for women in sub-Saharan Africa. Both were double, du- double blind, double dummy studies, which meant that half of the people got the pill, half of them got the injection. I- I'm sorry, they, everybody got a pill and an injection. Half of them got a dummy pill and an actual injection. Half of them got an actual pill and a dummy injection. Um, there were three stages, though, to this study. There was an oral lead-in phase. Then they got an, an, IV, an IM loading dose at 
zero and four weeks, and then every eight week injections, um, because the PK suggested that you need every eight weeks to keep yourself above the target uh, level of drug in the blood. And then uh, and a long oral phase, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, to cover this PK tail. Um, both of them used FTDF as the comparator, and there are studies, uh, bridging studies to adolescents, both a trial for men sex with men and transgender women, another one for cisgender women um, that are uh, soon to launch. So the HPTN083 study, we got an announcement in May of 2020 that the DSMB met for a planned interim analysis and that they stopped the blinded phase of the study because it met the pre-specified non-inferiority early stopping boundary. So that was uh, uh, pre-specified. We knew that at that point that the overall incidence was 0.79%. But what we learned at AIDS 2020 was that cabotegravir was actually superior to FTDF with an odds ratio of 0.34 or a relative reduction of 66% in the risk of HIV acquisition. And it appeared to provide protection in all subgroups. So um, there wasn't, wasn't statistical power to look at all of the subgroups, but the trend was the same based on age, race, ethnicity, men who have sex with men and transgender women. And what was really important about this study is that um, unlike some other trials, this, this study really wanted to get, uh, really worked hard to get both data on transgender women where 12% of the population enrolled were transgender women, as well as uh, getting a racially and ethnically diverse population. So more than half or half of the uh, U.S.-based population were black or African-American. So that does show that cabotegravir worked in the population that we most want to get it to. The injection site reactions were higher in the cabotegravir arm. It was 80% versus 30%. Um, Only 2% discontinued because of uh, um, the injection site reactions. But we do have to remember that about 25% dropped out of each of the arms uh, in the study. And so we don't have data on a quarter of the participants who enrolled in the study. Sorry. And so this was the uh, HIV incidence. You can see there were 13 infections in the cabotegravir arm, 39 infections in the TDF-FTC arm. So it favored cabotegravir with this odds ratio of 0.34, did not, did not cross the non-inferiority, but also did not cross the superiority boundary. So it actually was superior. But there are a lot of unanswered questions about cabotegravir long-acting for uh, PrEP. We don't yet know whether or not it works in cisgender women, but fortunately there is a sister trial that's nearly fully enrolled, so we should hopefully get results um, in the not-too-distant future. We don't know what adherence was like in each of the arms. We have a small subsample of um, adherence data on uh, on the the. TDF-FTC arm. We don't have drug levels, though, um, at, uh, in each of the arms, so we don't know that yet. We also don't know why breakthrough infections happened in each of the arms. What were the drug levels at the time of infection? Um, in particular, there was a group of five people in the cabotegravir arm 
who actually were getting regular injections all on schedule, and yet they still had breakthrough infections. And so the question is, why was that? Was it did it have to do with PK? Same thing about the oral run-in phase of the cabotegravir long-arm, uh, long-acting arm. Was it due to PK, or was there transmitted drug resistance? And then we don't know whether tr- resistance developed after infection in each of the arms, and that's really important because of this question of the tail. Um, what you can see is that, uh, and I'm sorry that this isn't showing up with animation, but the target drug level that we would be looking for would be four times the PAIC90. 76 weeks after the last injection in this phase two study, um, we had uh, 64, I'm sorry, we had no one who had uh, the target level of drug available in their blood, which is not to be, un- it's, it's expected. We were injecting every eight weeks. But what you can see is that 13% of the men and 42% of the women had low levels of drug in their blood uh, at that period of time. So this is now a year and a half after the last injection. And the concern is that people might have too low a level of drug to actually provide protection, but high enough to select for resistance. And so that's that long PK tail. What we know is that in the HPTN083 study, they covered that tail with a year's worth of drug, but we also know that it lasts for more than a year in some substantial um, subpopulation and up to three to four years in, um, in some individuals. And so we really do need to understand what's the, uh, what are the ramifications if people go off of long-acting cabotegravir and uh, are later exposed to HIV. We also... Yeah, go ahead. Um, in the, uh, the cis women study, uh, are they covering for longer than a year uh, at the They're end not. Of the study, yeah. They're not. Yeah. That's a good question because it is, it, the PK does seem to, the tail seems to be longer in women, but they are only still covering it for a year. So we will learn whether or not that's a problem. Um, you know, if, if the protective levels are actually quite a bit lower, then it might provide longer, a more prolonged period of protection. But there's still this concern that you get into this sub-therapeutic range where you're not high enough to protect, but you are high enough to select for resistance. And what we don't know is if you wipe out the entire class of integrase inhibitors, which would be really problematic. Um, We also know that it could be difficult to, to scale up if we take the 1.1 million people who are projected to need PrEP in the U.S. Um, and you, uh, you had to do six injections a year, that would be 6.6 million injections per year just in the U.S. And these are not easy, just roll up your sleeve and get a, an injection in the arm that you could do through a, through a pharmacy window. This is a gluteal injection, so it takes a little bit more uh, effort. Okay, let's go to the next case. Um, a 48-year-old man who has sex with men with hypertension comes in requesting PrEP. He has multiple partners, frequent sex, and frequent STIs. His creatinine is 1.7. His creatinine clearance is 61. What would you do? Would you, one, prescribe daily TDF-FTC, two, prescribe daily TAF-FTC, three, prescribe every other day TDF-FTC, four, prescribe pericoidal PrEP, or five, tell them you should just use condoms. Okay, so 85% of you are going to prescribe TAF-FTC. And what about my panelists? 
both on mute. Well, I would presume you're going to tell us about the TAF studies. Yes. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, I would agree with the panelists. Um, the, I think number five, he, he's already demonstrated that he has multiple partners and frequent STIs. So I think this is a patient who's a candidate for um, persistent condom use in addition to TAF FTC or whatever you decide to treat. Yes. Susan, I wondered about number three, though. Um, is every other day TDFFTC adequate? Um, well, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but because yes, four times a week prep uh, TDFFTC is actually adequate for uh, prevention of infection, but we do have a good other uh, regimen that's available for somebody. Um, and that is uh, TAF FTC. What we know is from a whole host of data that uh, people who are at risk for a GFR falling below 70 are people who start off with a lower GFR and people who are over the age of 40. Um, and in the Partners Prep and Partners Demo study, it was also people who were smaller, uh, less than 55 kilograms. But what was important in this study is that over 75% of the creatinine increases were unconfirmed on a repeat test, and there was no difference in picking up true renal effects if the every three- to six-month testing um, was done. So we can do testing every six months. You don't need to do it every three months. Um, in the Thai IDU study, there's no effective, there was no effective recent IDU on creatinine, so you can use... Um, PrEP safely in injection drug users, um, but they were more likely to have renal effects with increased age. So again, we have this pattern that if you start off with some renal insufficiency or you're older, you may be more likely to um, bump your creatinine. Um, the good news is that creatinine reverts to near baseline uh, after the trial and those individuals who stopped PrEP and rechallenge has been used successfully. But there now is another option, which is FTAF, and this was data from the DISCOVER trial that enrolled 5,400, mostly men who have sex with men, only about 1% were transgender women, um, into this randomized control trial where they either got FTAF or FTDF on a daily basis. Um, you can see that the Week 96 data were presented at CROI this year. There were eight infections in the FTAF arm, 15 infections in the FTDF arm, um, that meant that it was non-inferior. It was not superior, but it was non-inferior. So it was at least as good as uh, FTDF. And it does give you the option to be able to treat people who may have some renal insufficiency. There were safety data that were also presented at the CROI conference. Um, a couple of things that just minimally favored FTAF. Bone mineral density um, was only a 1% to 2% difference at the spine and the hip and no difference in fractures. So we really didn't see a lot of difference there, but it slightly favored FTAF. And this is, uh, you had a pretest question on this. There was only a four milliliter per minute difference in the estimated GFR at week 96. So again, while it, um, we, uh, there may be some minor um, reduction in uh, renal function in F FTDF in patients on PrEP, F, it slightly favors FTAF. You favor FTDF um, for with lipids, although, again, no difference in total cholesterol to HDL ratio 
and body weight was just a kilogram difference in body weight. And so Julia Marcus um, created this infographic, which I think is really helpful, that's a head-to-head comparison of TDF-FTC and TAF-FTC. You can see that they're different sized pills. Um, men who have sex with men and transgender women can take either, but heterosexuals and people who inject drugs have only been tested um, with TDF-FTC, not with TAF-FTC. There's a slight improvement or slight uh, weighting towards benefit of FTAF for uh, renal function and bone mineral density and a slight favoring uh, in terms of LDL and body weight for uh, FTDF. The cost currently is the same, but uh, FTDF is going to be going generic uh, later this year. And so that may be a factor in making a decision. And so for this reason, uh, many invest, many providers are using FTDF as the universal prep and starting with that, unless there's an indication like renal, uh, renal disease, uh, bone mineral density, or somebody who may be uh, older and you're concerned about renal disease, um, that may tip you towards FTAF. Okay, next case. 34-year-old MSM has sex with new partners approximately twice a month. He doesn't want to take a daily pill because his sexual exposures are relatively infrequent, and he doesn't always use condoms. So what do you do? Do you encourage him to use condoms? Do you say his exposure is relatively low, so don't worry about PrEP? Do you encourage him to take daily PrEP? Do you have him start PrEP seven days before each of these sexual episodes, or do you prescribe on-demand or 2-1-1 PrEP? Okay, 80% of you are going to go with 2-1-1 prep. Um, what, what, what is the panel thing? Paul's nodding, thumbs up. Okay, thumbs up from Sally. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Connie, did you want to say something, or you're also? I was giving my thumbs up, too. Thumbs up, too. Okay, great. So, um, just... It sounds like everybody or many people are familiar with the hypergase study and the regimen, which is two tablets, two to 24 hours before sex, one tablet 24 hours after that, and one tablet um, 48 hours after that. And um, it can also be thought of as 21111 prep because you just keep taking a daily pill until 48 hours after your last dose. And when you restart, if the last pill was within seven days, you don't need the loading dose. You can just take one pill to start. So um, data from the Ipergay study showed this 97% relative risk reduction in versus placebo in the open label component of it. But we do know that people on average were taking 18 pills a month, which is the equivalent of four pills a week, which is what Paul was talking about earlier. Um, and what we have are data from model, a modeling study that used data from two different studies. The Strand study, in which we gave people two pills a week, four pills a week, or seven pills a week. This was a low-risk group, and we were doing this with directly observed therapy just to get the drug levels. And then that was mapped onto the Ipergay, uh, I'm sorry, the IPREX study. And what you can see is that you nearly have the same level of efficacy with four pills a week in men who have sex with men versus seven pills a week, um, which is, uh, you know, a daily dosing. And so um, the question is, since the Ipergay study had the equivalent of four doses a week, was that, uh, was that actually 
testing a new regimen or was it just um, the equivalent of daily pills? So what they did is they did an evaluation of people who were taking fewer pills per month and found that, yes, in fact, it did actually provide significant protection in that group of individuals. So we do think that 211 PrEP is quite highly effective and can be used for um, to provide prevention uh, protection. I would just caution the CDC is still only recommending daily PrEP, and it's the only licensed indication by the FDA. But the IASUSA guidelines do recommend 211 um, PrEP. TDF-FTC PrEP as an alternative to daily PrEP for men who have sex with men. And the WHO has actually endorsed 211 PrEP. Um, remember that you can only use it if you can plan ahead for the pre-dose and take those post-doses. And you should be counseling um, patients to use it with all of their partners. It's only been tested in FTDF, so don't use it with FTAV. Um, and daily PrEP is the only recommended option for cis and transgender women and people who inject drugs because the PK may be different in those situations, and we don't have data on 2-1-1 PrEP in any of those populations. So again, just as a reminder, who can use it? It's only been studied in men who have sex with men. Don't use it if somebody's got chronic hepatitis B infection because it could trigger a flare. Um, you need to be able to plan ahead for at least two hours, um, so you, that you're taking your first pill two hours before. And I've heard very creative uh, options that people use. They take their pill and then they go on to a uh, social networking app or they open a bottle of wine with their partner and have that before they uh, engage in sex. Um, and remember, it may not give you the same level of forgiveness in terms of missed doses. Okay, the next case. Your 31-year-old patient on PrEP comes in for his routine quarterly lab test. His fourth-generation antibody test comes back positive, but the confirmatory test and the viral load come back negative. What do you do? Do you repeat the tests but continue PrEP as you assume the fourth-generation test is a false positive? Do you repeat the tests and stop PrEP but start ART for acute HIV infection? Do you repeat the tests and stop PrEP until you can determine what the infection status is, or do you do something else? Okay, we have a, a pretty uh, broad distribution in terms of answers, and that's quite appropriate because there is no correct answer to this. Um, there, uh, there may be some considerations to uh, consider, um, but do any of the panelists want to speak to to uh, what you might do in this situation or what this, what this might be telling you? So I went with uh, starting uh, therapy. Uh, I think the safest thing probably would be to start therapy for acute infection because um, otherwise you do have the risk of selecting for resistance if it, if it, is, if it has really just gotten infected. So I, I don't know that there's a right answer. To yeah. Sally, were you going to say something? Well, no, I was just going to say, I, I think, you know, you'd really be concerned if this is acute infection, you don't want to continue the PrEP and, and risk development of resistance. And I think, you know, it will clarify in, uh, you know, several weeks at the max. So I would start, you know, ART. I think that's yeah. the most conservative and safest thing to do. And, yeah. and it's not forever. Yeah. Excuse me. So, this, this makes me ask a question, though, of the, the, the recent thing from the uh, blood banks on, 
uh, detection of uh, ARVs and people donating blood? And is this kind of related to that? I think so. Well, we're also seeing some different patterns of seroconversion in patients who are uh, on PrEP. And we are seeing positive, um, we're seeing false positive tests on fourth generation uh, assays as well. And so it, it can be really difficult to sort through this. I just, this is just a reminder that the RNA comes up first and then you get uh, P24 antigen and then you develop your uh, other antibodies. And so if you do a fourth generation test and just did the confirmatory test and the fourth gen was positive and the confirmatory tests were negative, then that might just be a, an early infection. Um, you do the viral load to try to differentiate between the two. In this case, the viral load is negative, but you don't know if that's because it's been suppressed because the person was um, on PrEP or if, in fact, they were truly infected. And so there really are three options. If you know that your, part, your patient is really strictly adherent to PrEP, some people would maintain um, protection using PrEP, but you do run that risk of resistance, and that is a real risk. Some people would start ART right away, which is what our, some of our panelists said, um, particularly if the person was not adherent to PrEP. That is probably the safest thing to do, um, but you, you want to confirm the diagnosis because you don't want to subject somebody to lifelong uh, antiretroviral treatment if they're not truly infected. Some people would stop PrEP and then reassess the HIV status, um, closely following so that you don't lose much time in terms of starting ART if they truly are infected, but you do run the risk of them becoming infected if they continue to be sexually active. And so the, just as a reminder, there is this PrEP warm line that you can call uh, in San Francisco. Uh, it's open from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time where you can get expert advice if you do see these um, strange results uh, in terms of the serologic uh, assays and, and, again, with with the viral load. If you did a viral load and it were positive, then you got your answer. But if it's negative, uh, you, you don't know if it's a false positive fourth-gen test or not. But, again, people are going to weigh the risks differently, and you may take into account how adherent the patient um, is known to be. Susan, I guess another question could be, would you refer this person to uh, an HIV cure um, research? Yes. Because this might be a situation where you would really follow the person carefully and start aggressive therapy. Right. And and we have de definitely done that in San Francisco where uh, people get onto treatment very early and then um, they're part of a cure uh, research agenda. So Susan, okay. we have a yeah. four-minute warning here. Okay. So let's do this as maybe this may end up being the last case. A 28-year-old HIV negative woman in a serodifferent relationship with an HIV positive man. He's newly diagnosed but not stably virally suppressed yet. The couple wants to have a baby. What do you recommend? Do you wait for the male partner to become fully virally suppressed for at least six months before attempting pregnancy? Do you use PrEP because it's safe periconception and in pregnancy? Do you not use PrEP because its safety is unknown but use sperm washing instead? Or do you do something else? Okay. Uh, half of you say it's safe in pregnancy, and 40% uh, want you to wait for the male partner to become fully virally suppressed. What does the panel want to do? 
So I would, um, I think prep, prep uh, for women is tenofovir and FTC. We have, you know, sort of a long history among um, women who are treated with uh, that regimen as part of combination uh, antiretroviral therapy. And we know that there does not appear to be an increased risk of uh, birth defects. So I would, you know, consider it uh, to be as safe as we can. The only caveat, I would, and I would certainly not wait, is tell people to wait six months. If they want to have a baby, they're not going to, most people won't wait six months. Mm-hmm. But my only caveat is, you know, what regimen is the male partner on? You know, can you get him on an integrase inhibitor so that he will become um, suppressed? And and if you can do that, I might say, you know, guys, can what do you think about a couple of weeks? Let's get him unsuppressed, put her on prep, make sure, you know, everybody's tolerating their meds and then go ahead. Personally, that's what I do. That sounds very reasonable. Uh, the risk of HIV acquisition in pregnancy is, is actually quite high. And so these are data taken from serodiscordant couples over 2,700 um, who were followed so they could actually adjust for what was the viral load like in the male partner. And they just looked at, uh, at, uh, linked infections and found that there was, uh, 2.76 increased risk of HIV acquisition in pregnancy compared to non-pregnant women. And that the risk of, uh, HIV infection actually increased as you went from early pregnancy to late pregnancy to postpartum. So there does seem to be some biological, um, factors that increase the risk of uh, HIV acquisition in pregnancy and post in the postpartum period. So you do want to provide protection. There is a lot of safety data now. Um, five studies of PrEP exposed women that showed no difference in either um, miscarriage, congenital anomalies, or growth through the first year of infancy, and then a systematic review of tenofovir exposure in pregnancy, um, both in positive and negative women, um, showing no significant difference in adverse pregnancy or infant outcomes. Uh, Connie, do I have time for one more, or should we move to, is there Q&A? You're on mute. Sorry. I think we should move on to Q&A. Okay, let's do that. Um, I think some of the questions you may cover your last case anyway. So um, let me just start off with... Uh, I think you've answered the question about STI use in PrEP, so we'll skip over that one. Um, One question related to your discussion on um, PEP to PrEP, and do you need to check a second HIV test at transitioning PEP to PrEP? Yes, that that is what you should do because you do want to be sure that the person didn't actually become infected from that uh, early infection before you're going to transition them to a two-drug regimen. With uh, If someone's had a recent exposure, do you recheck the HIV test before starting PrEP? No, if they've been on, well, if they've been on PEP the whole time, sorry, so if they've been on PEP the whole time, you do want to check a, an HIV infection, uh, uh, you want to test for HIV infection to be sure that they weren't infected um, from that original exposure. You don't need to, if they then at that point have had a recent exposure. You don't need to continue the PEP because they've been on this uh, PEP regimen. You can just transition them to PrEP. Okay. And there's 
a couple of questions about um, TAF FTC and use in PrEP in cisgender women. Yeah, it, that, that's a tricky one. We don't actually have the data, and so um, it really isn't recommended yet uh, that we use it. If you were in a pinch and you didn't have anything else to offer, you might give it a you might consider it. But it's um, we're hoping that there will actually be data coming from. There is a trial that's being planned. Uh, I don't believe it's yet launched to to look at cabotegravir along. I'm sorry to look at um, uh, TAF FTC and um, in women, but we don't have any data on that yet. Oh, though, Susan, just to be devil's advocate, you know, yeah. HIV occurs at the level of the cell, and we know that TAF is actually, you get yeah. higher levels. Um, and and the other issue, there are some conflicting data, but, you know, I in my time have had a heck of a time with women uh, on PrEP having nausea and, and many of them dropping mm-hmm. off. And there are yeah. some data that perhaps TAF has less nausea. So, so, I mean, I'm not to yeah. second guess the FDA or anything, but I, I was kind of surprised at, at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think you can make a case for using it, particularly when, as I said, if you, if you need to and you don't have another option. I don't generally recommend it as a first line until we get some data, but, um, I, I can understand trying it in, you know, and it should be effective. What we don't really know is what you need in terms of tissue levels. Um, but it's the non-human primate data suggest it's protective. Um, and as you said, in terms of uh, blood levels, we know that that should be protective. Well, and it, it just also makes the point that, you know, women are half, at least half, more than half the people on this planet. And you've yes. got to do studies yes. in women. You yes. know, I mean, that just makes me crazy. Absolutely. And that's why the, the cabotegravir long-acting study was so well done, because it both got the right population for um, for the MSM trial, but also they have a separate women's trial that will get data on that population as well. Um, so kind of on that theme, how about cabotegravir long-acting studies in trans men? Well, that's a great question. I mean, trans men have been left out of a lot of these studies, and I think that um, that's really problematic. The problem is that the infection rate is really low in trans men, so I would want to, uh, we don't have the option of cabotegravir long-acting right now um, for, uh, for PrEP, but we will soon. I think it would be really helpful if once we get the data from men who have sex with men, from the MSM transgender women trial, which we have, and from the, the, the trial in women, um, in cisgender women, then I think we can extrapolate to trans men. Okay. Um a couple of people were expressing some doubts about the use of therapy for the tail with these long-acting agents, knowing what our experience in, was in using a fixed dose with a tail in HIV therapy. Most people just stop on their own. So yeah. I think the same thing is likely to happen here. So I think that's a cautionary note. Yes. Um, then... Uh, there are a couple comments, again, about trans men. Um, they are being included in Merck's Islatravir study, That's right. looking at once monthly dosing for PrEP. So we may have some data from that. Yes. Um, 
another comment about TAF was approved for uh, PrEP and anal sex. So cis women's that's, anal sex. That's true. That's absolutely true. During that behavior. Um, one of our audience members asked if you could show the ambiguous HIV test result information again for the hotline number. Yeah, I can give you the number. It's uh, 855-448-7737. And another one of our audience members is questioning whether there are data about neural tube defects and long-acting cabotegravir. Will we have lots of women on long-acting cabotegravir and then have a scare for neural tube deficits and be stuck. Yeah, in- you know, and I think that this is part of the challenge with all of these studies being done without uh, pregnant women and without without allowing women to become pregnant. So we'll we'll undoubtedly have some early pregnancy data in women who become pregnant uh, in the cabotegravir long-acting study, because even though they're counseled not to become pregnant, they may. So hopefully we'll have information about early pregnancy, but this is just a real deficit in the way that we're doing studies by not including women in pregnancy. We don't get the safety data. And in particular for cabotegravir long-acting, I do have real concerns about this tale just because it's so long-lasting. and particular in women. Um, So I think we're going to have to understand a lot more about that. Um. And then there's just one comment about um, some of your data related to resistance. And I think it goes back um, to one of your cases that if someone is undetectable on day zero and are treated with Truvada, are they really likely to get resistance to Truvada if they're actively infected by day 30? What's the likelihood of 30 days of exposure? Oh, they can actually do it. I mean, we've seen uh, resistance develop within seven days of Truvada um, in somebody who was put onto PrEP for, uh, for, and found later to have been uh, infected. So it's not, not necessarily, it's not a certainty, but we've certainly seen it happen. Okay, I think that does it for our Q&A. Okay, thanks. I'm going to turn the program back over to Paul.